That's better. Yeah. I, it only rang once, and I didn't get a chance. I just clicked on it. You hung up. Oh. I, I gather it rang more than once. That always happens. I've got something like 25 questions. I don't think we're going to get anywhere near through the end of it because we're just going to talk, and that's fine. Okay. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by, you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. Whitley Strieber is known as an acclaimed novelist. In his 1987 book, Communion, he wrote about his interactions with what he referred to as the visitors, a term he chose to be as neutral as possible to entertain the possibility that they are not extraterrestrials. Although the book is perceived generally as an account of alien abduction, he draws no conclusions about the identity of these entities. Both the hardcover and paperback editions of Communion reached number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Millions became intimately familiar with the iconic gray alien on the cover, which continues to be the archetype for extraterrestrials to this day. Since then, he has written several additional books detailing his experiences with the visitors. Breakthrough, published in 1995, was a reflection on the original events and accounts of the sporadic contact he'd subsequently experienced. The Secret School, which came out in 1996, examined strange memories from his childhood and solving the communion enigma published in 2011, was about how advances in scientific understanding since Communion's publication may shed light on his reported experiences. Strieber concluded that the human species is being shepherded to a higher level of understanding and existence with an endless multiverse of matter, energy, space, and time. He's also reported anomalous childhood experiences and suggested that he may have suffered some sort of early interference by intelligence or military agencies. In 2016, he co-wrote a book with scholar of religion, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, entitled The Supernatural, which framed his experiences as part of a tradition and continuum of extraordinary experiences such as those described by mystics throughout history. His forthcoming book, which is entitled A New World, is what he sees as a direct message from the visitors themselves and how the human species may move forward with contact. Whitley, thank you for taking the time to uh, be on the show. I've been waiting for this for a really long time. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm sorry it's been so long. Oh, that's okay. I feel lucky that we can talk and um, <laughs> have this, I don't know, on the record or something like that. I guess we can start at least at the beginning of the visitor stuff, which I guess begins on December 26, 1985, right? 
Well, not really. It begins well before that, but right. the first overt thing that forced me to face it, that was it. Any hints before that? I mean, I guess you sort of said, yeah, well, some of it came out of, in the... A lot of hints before that, uh, specifically um, the, uh, the summer before that, I was getting migraines without any real awareness of the fact that of why that might be. And then some time later, a couple of years later, in fact, in 1980, late 1988 or early 89, I had some friends up at the cabin. One of them is a, a psychologist, Dr. John Glideman, who was uh, uh, the husband of uh, NPR reporter and author Margot Adler. And they were there. Mm-hmm. They were very close friends and John was a strict scientism skeptic he could not absolutely buy any of this but we were friends anyway I mean I don't care I have a lot of friends who don't buy my act at all I can't, <laughs> you know. well they're still friends who, so that's great a lot who do but I don't really look at that I mean I don't choose my friends based on their beliefs right I choose them based on whatever it is that what kind of people they are yeah vice versa yeah yeah so anyway we were there we were all a group of us about 10 of us were there and sitting in a circle in the circle in the little glade where i had originally been uh ascended into the ufo uh, uh, i had made a circle of stones there and we were sitting on the stones and um the next thing that happened was this beautiful, beautiful column of golden light came straight down from above into the circle. It was broad daylight, but you could see it clearly. Mm-hmm. And when you looked through the light, everything on the other side of it was just super, super clear. So we were all looking at it and commenting on it. It was anyone could see it except John did not see it. He could not see it. He was sitting there like the rest of us and didn't see it. That afternoon, he got an unbelievable migraine. Hmm. And I realized why, because it took me back to the summer before, two, three summers before, the summer of 85, when I would get these migraines every afternoon. And the reason was I was pushing the visitors away. I knew they were there. That was the time when I was lurking around, I building alarm systems, buying guns and patrolling at night and all this stuff, uh, obsessively worried about something that was driving my wife crazy because she says, you know, you live in Manhattan. It doesn't bother you. You go out into the country that hasn't been a crime committed in 50 years and you're terrified. So, you know, and I realized I put two and two together and I realized that was when it actually started. Then the next step came in October of that year of 85, when we had two friends, Annie Gottlieb and Jacques Sandalescu, a couple up to, to, to spend the weekend. And during the middle of the Saturday night, it might've been the Friday night, when anyway, we were there for two nights, we'd come back from dinner at a restaurant, all gone to bed early. And, Suddenly, I was awakened by a bright light outside this pouring in the windows. And I thought it the stove was, wood stove was on. And so I thought, holy moly, the house is on fire. The stove has set the roof on fire. Mm-hmm. So I jumped out of bed with the intention of getting everybody out of the house before they all burned up. And the light went out. And I could hear my son. Oh, and there was a big bang at the same time. And my son, downstairs, six or seven years old at that point, so was screaming. Jock and Annie were yelling. And so I ran downstairs after the light had went, gone off and inexplicably said, oh, it's no problem. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was not fine. But, yeah. you know, I called my son down and went back to bed. In the morning, the following transpired. Jacques had been awakened and thought with a, by a light around the house so bright he thought it was broad daylight. Mm. Annie said, what were your cats doing? I said, the cats aren't here. They're in the city. And we had two cats then. So she then reports, well, I heard something scurrying across 
the floor of your room upstairs. We were upstairs in the bedroom, the two, the kids' rooms and the guest room were downstairs. Meaning that something had run away from the bed as I jumped up. Mm -hmm. And this was an incident of them trying to make me aware of their presence. And I was still tuning them out in the summer. It didn't work. So it became more overt and they did it on a night when there would be witnesses. Ah, still didn't work. (laughs) Finally, the night after Christmas, they just must've said, Oh, screw it. They hauled me out of the house and beat me up the side of the head and did all kinds of crap to me. And finally, I woke up and realized I am damn well not in my bed. These little bug-eyed monsters are real. And that's that's when it started, really. That's how it started. It was a progression. Have you ever, and I'm sure you've written about it and you wonder about it, why you? Oh, I know. I know very well why me. Uh, there are a number of reasons. Number one. I was in a program at Randolph Air Force Base in 1952 from August through October where I was placed in what was described to my parents as a Skinner box in a learning enhancement experiment that was anything but. All I remember is terrible noise, being confined in suffocating heat with other children, namely my sister and a boy from across the street called Mike Ryan. And just utter terror. The two other children, I think, I don't remember any of this for sure, but guessing, I I think we were told that if we told our parents about it, we would never see them again or stuff crap like that. Mm. Um, I know that this all happened because a very close friend of mine to this day had the same people actually, uh, uh, recruit him at his home while he was in the living room listening to the recruitment from the two Air Force people uh, explaining the Skinner box and learning enhancement and all this stuff. And his parents did not buy into the idea of a Skinner box, which is a, a behavioral yes. a box, which behavioral changes are done by invented by a man named B.F. Skinner right. uh, back in the 40s, I believe. But in any case... He, his parents did not buy into it, but he remembers the conversations vividly. And not only that, I guess in, in order to try to break their resistance down, the two Air Force people, a man and woman, befriended them and became friends. And they spent time at the house and had parties together and everything. Only they never would let him get into it because they just <laughs> did not like the idea at Skinner Box. So that's number one. The cosmic egg was cracked in... Uh, October of that year, my immune system collapsed. I had no more white blood cells. I was put in isolation at Brook General Hospital in San Antonio and given what I remember is gigantic shots of gamma globulin. When I was a little boy, they probably weren't all that big, but it looked like these people were hauling sewer pipes full of gamma globulin or whatever it was into the room and injecting me with these gigantic needles. In any case, um, that went on for about a, some number of days or weeks. I don't remember how long. And then I was kept at home in isolation away from all other children, including my sister, until January when I was then returned to school and no longer in the program. Mm. <laughs> the cosmic egg was cracked. A few Years or months, I don't have any idea of the actual time frame. Apparently, the visitors showed up in my life and remained in it until I was reached puberty, and then they were gone. I wrote about that in the secret school, and my the secret school right. is a tissue of actual memories and imagination. I don't know which is which because I was a kid, and God only knows. It's hard enough to describe this as an adult, let alone when you're remembering <laughs> childhood experiences. Anyway, so I soon forgot all about that. By the time I was in high school, it was completely gone from my memory. Then fast forward to the next thing, or let's go back to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Because in 1947, my uncle, Mickey Streber, was involved in the Roswell incident at Wright Field. He handled the materials 
I think he probably also handled the biologicals, which his close friend, General Arthur Exxon, certainly did because he talked about it, meaning that this was now in their family. Because let me tell you about this stuff. When you're actually involved in this in the real world and not some some con artist talking to thousands of gaping suckers, if you're really doing this, you know something. If you look at this stuff, it's looking back at you. These materials are not normal materials. And you know this, Greg. Mm -hmm. Th they are not normal materials. If you touch them or you are looking at them, then, they, then whoever's behind this knows everything about you. And they found little old Wheaty back in there somewhere, which is probably why I ended up a few years later at Randolph. Okay. Now we go forward again. To the next reason, 1970, I joined the Gurdjieff Foundation with Anne because we meet a guy, uh, another PA on uh, the Owl and the Pussycat movie, which I'm a PA on, mm -hmm. and uh, having a load of fun, by the way. It's wonderful fun. So anyway, we meet this guy, and he's possessed by P.D. Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous and talking up the Gurdjieff Foundation. So we join it, right. and it's incredibly cool. We love it. And we were in it for 15 years, during which time I learned something called the sensing exercise, which I have been doing regularly since 1970. What I now know from studies that have been done on people who are in the close encounter experience and did this for a long time is that there are two brain areas right below the pineal gland that its secretions go down into are called the caudate and the putamen, and they are uh, linked by a nerve bundle. And this type of meditation especially increases the number of nerves in that bundle. They grow more and more. And the more that happens, the more intuitive you become. Pressure from the visitors makes it happen as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm completely set up at this point. I leave the foundation in uh, 1984, I think, a year later, and, and I have a real master in the foundation, uh, William Siegel and his assistant, jo uh, Joseph Stein. I learned an enormous amount of deep material from them about meditation and the nature of awakening and what a life in ordinary awakening is really a life in sleep is all about. And I really learned this deeply. And then real masters show up in my life because I'm doing the sensing exercise every night out, especially when I'm out there in the country, I'm all alone. And fast forward again, after Annie's passed away, right? Uh, I'm at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee, being held by William Henry and Claire Henry, his wife. And suddenly a lady comes up to me at a break and says, Mr. Streber, I have something I need to tell you. And it's kind of weird. I said, you can't tell me anything that's too weird. <laughs> Go ahead and don't even worry about it. So she says, okay. I just heard Anne's voice in my ear say as clear as a bell. And she'd been at Dreamland festivals and listened to Anne. She was a fan, so she knew what Anne sounded like. Um, tell Whitley that I can see him when he's in the chair. I knew instantly what that meant. It meant when I was doing the sensing exercise. My mind then flashed back to an incident that happened in probably 89 when I had a brief kind of channeled uh, contact with the visitors and I'm lousy at channeling. I never believe it, but this was unusually clear. And one of the things I asked was when, why did you come here? And the answer was, we saw a glow. I thought, Oh, that must mean the glow of cities. But the instant I heard that from Anne, I realized it's not the glow of cities. It was the glow of my nervous system. When I applied my attention to my sensation and it changes it. It makes it look brighter in the other level of reality. And they saw that and they showed up and they re reconnected. Established. With me yeah. Yeah. So long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, it was a great answer. That actually brings up another, uh, the, the last thing you said about Anne was that, uh, she, Eventually, you know, after, after she passed away, you said that she came back to you and you wrote uh, Afterlife Resolution, uh, Revolution together. 
Yeah. Yeah. She, in fact, she was just back as recently as a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, yeah. What happened was this. Yeah, I was, was going to ask, you know, Annie, how did you know it was Annie, her and what objective proof did you have and things okay. like that? Well, I have a lot of a lot of it, actually. Yeah. Uh, Annie <laughs> I've heard some of died. it. Yeah. yeah, you have. Yes, that's right. Annie dies at, I think, 745 on the evening of August the 11th, 2015. I am by 930 sitting in the living room, just staring off into space. Her body has been taken away under really unusual circumstances. They, I mean, in the hearse. The moment she died, she began to manifest what I now know are manifestations of what the Tibetan Buddhists call the rainbow body. Her physical presence diminished shockingly. She didn't even look like a person. I mean, she was almost gone. Mm. Then they took her away, and as they left, as the hearse left, this fog kind of came up in the alley where it was driving away to the point where you couldn't even see it anymore. And we took a picture of it. It was so unusual. And then when the, it was gone, the fog immediately disappeared. And then later, as we were going to her wake in Texas, rainbow after rainbow appeared. And these are the three, three of the signs of rainbow body. Anyway, so she was a very realized soul, obviously, is what I'm getting at. Now, after it's 9.30, I'm sitting there, I'm totally bereft, and the phone rings. And I think, oh, my God, I'm not taking a phone call now. Who could be calling me some jerk? So I answer the phone anyway, I'm, you know, and it's not a no jerk. It's Belle Fuller, a dear friend of Anne's, who... And sent out a call on Dreamland when we first moved to California. We have no friends in L.A. We want friends. And Belle came forward with her husband. And they became friends, and we're still friends. So uh, Belle says, Whitley, I just heard Anne's voice very clearly call, say to me, call Whitley and tell him I'm okay. And I was floored. She said, I mean, she started out saying, is Anne all right? Yeah. And I said, no, Belle, she's not all right. Anne died a little while ago, honey. And she said, well, because I just, and then she told me this. That's mm -hmm. why she had called. Mm -hmm. That was the first one. Then, um, I believe, yeah, a couple of days later, I was sitting in the hills above Palm Springs, in the mountains above Palm Springs, on a bench, my kids and and their kids were out hiking, and I was just sitting there kind of wishing and saying, Annie, if you still exist, give me some kind of a sign. And the phone rings, my cell phone rings. It's not unusual. I mean, there, there was cell phone service right there. And I pick it up, and it's Claire Henry from Nashville. And Claire says, Whitley, I just heard Anne tell me to call you right now. And I... <laughs> I said, okay, Claire, and now at this point, even I, who tend to be a little dense about these things, realized that Anne was still around. And it continued like that. There was oh, half a dozen of those, Trish and Rob McGregor, Trish was writing a blog about Anne, and Anne was obviously right there and not being noticed. And she, she created some kind of a huge explosion that sent them both leaping out of their chairs and running out of the house because they thought it had blown up. There was absolutely nothing had exploded. It was simply the sound, but no actual explosion. Mm -hmm. And so they decided maybe that was Anne. And I said, listen, Trish, you know, Annie was not, she had a temper and you, you were ignoring her. I've already heard her say, it looks like you are all intentionally ignoring us. I was beginning to communicate with her at that point. And you pissed her off, and she made that sound in order to get your attention. And that was just the beginning. There, it's much more complex than that. Back in January of 2015, when Anne knew she understood deeply what she was doing, she knew she was going to die, that she would not die until August, because I kept her going. I kept her going just out of sheer love, even though she would have left in January had... I've been able to let her go. Anyway, mm -hmm. 
she started getting me to memorize a poem, Song of the Wandering Angus, for a particular reason, which I'll get to in a second. Yes. I struggled with that. But then after Annie died, I remembered it and I memorized it. And no sooner had I started doing that than I began to have these odd things happening involving a white moth. And what would happen would be a white moth would appear while I was away somewhere talking about Anne, either in a lecture or in some other way talking about her. A white moth would appear just once and fly across the field of vision of the surveillance camera in the living room and then disappear. It made this, except for the first time, which it, where it flew around in front of the camera for a long time. The rest of the times after I had understood what was going on, it would just go across once and then disappear. And each time I saved the video footage. Once I was at, uh, in fact, at uh, University of North Carolina, uh, with Diana Pasilka and Patricia Teresi, whom I know you know, mm -hmm. and you've been there, yeah. yeah, and giving a lecture, and the phone beeps, and it, it's the, I'm talking literally at that moment. I just talked, mentioned Anne's name, and was talking about her, and I look down, and it's the white moth going across. Another time, I was sitting with my son at Christmas. Christmas afternoon on December the 25th, 2017, and I was telling him about the white moth. At that moment, the phone beeps. It's the, a text from the camera. The white moth crosses again. And th now here's the line from Song of the Wandering Ingus that's relevant here. When white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, that line is there, but there's another more important reason for her use of the white moth as a signal. It is that her absolute favorite short story of all the short stories I've ever written, which she told me many times, is called The White Moths. And it's about a woman discovering that she is dead. Hmm. And hmm. this is why I know it is really Anne. There's more than this. That's why I wrote the Afterlife Revolution. I'm just giving you the 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 high points, as it were. There's more. So, and most recently, in fact, a couple weeks ago, I was at an uh, at the Pine Ridge Lakota Sioux Reservation giving a talk about Anne. I was going to ask and, about that. Yeah, and the white moth showed up. Uh, it, <laughs> I think the, you told me that a couple weeks ago. That's right. Yeah, the Dallas Chief Eagle, the who was hosting us, and another member of the group saw this moth show up, fly up to my jacket, which was hanging on the back of a chair, and disappear. The white moth has a wonderful habit of disappearing. I tell you another incident that happened that was very cool was that I gave the lecture at Esalen before a group of social scientists and uh, people like that. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Vaney, who, who has the experience on Unknown Country, was there. And Jeremy, Annie loved Jeremy's work. She thought he was brilliant. So I give the white moth, the thing about the white moth and everything, and the whole, everybody almost in the group but me goes up to dinner. I go off to have a massage, which is Esalen is justifiably famous for. Yeah. When I come back, they're all in an uproar because they were all sitting at the same table in the dining hall at Esalen, and a white moth came and flew round and round and round. And this was like in February. Yeah. And when it's uh, cold so, and there's not too many insects. Well, the skeptical Whitley starts looking for white moths everywhere, and I have to admit I found a few. Mm -hmm. But then, then. The next night we have the, or two nights later, we have the final banquet of the, of the conference. And we're all in a, in a room together, in a banquet hall together. All the windows are closed. It is cold. And there is no question about it, really, about any white moths showing up. A white moth shows up while we're talking about Anne and talking about the conference, <laughs> circles the room before everyone's eyes and then lands on Jeremy's head. <laughs> I've got a picture. i got a photo of it. Uh -huh. Then it takes off in front of everyone. Everyone is cheering and clapping and saying, hello, Anne, and toasting her and everything. 
flies up to the stone fireplace chimney, flies toward it, and then is just simply gone. And it has a wonderful habit of disappearing. It disappears in front of the camera every time you see it. It flies straight toward the window and then just just disappears. It doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I've never found the remains of a moth in here of any kind, like, except the little tiny, you know, the little moths that get after your clothes, which get trapped by uh, uh, moth traps in the closets. But I yeah. mean, those are not like this at all. So, uh, <laughs> and and once I found the carapace of a moth on the floor, but it was not the same kind of moth. Again, it was much much smaller than what what I, I've seen. So. It's a real thing. It's a real supernatural, or I hate to say that, I hate to hate that word, a yes. natural event that we don't yet understand is what it is. Yeah, and it's was... how Anne communicates. Okay. And she does it all the time. The most recent was a couple weeks ago. Ah. And, and oh, afterwards, after the that night, the women were all in a room upstairs in, in a dormitory setting with no windows open at all because it was chilly and... Uh, the white moth appears in the dormitory and starts flying around them when they're all talking about my lecture and about Anne. And, of course, they're all cheering again and saying, hi, Anne, and everything. The white moth goes into the bathroom, lands on the on the washing machine, which was in the bathroom. They go in to look for it, and somehow or another, it's on the washing machine one second, and then it just seems to be gone. And so that's the most recent event. And I think it's all very wonderful. And I think my wife is a skilled afterlife person. She is out there and it's terribly cool. It's just wonderful. I wear both wedding rings on the theory that we are apparently definitely still married and I'm glad of that. And so we're just sharing one body. And so far as she is able to do that, it's open to her. (laughs) When she said, when Anne said that the visitor experience and death are intimately connected, what did that mean to you and how did she describe it? She came out of her office one day and she said to me, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. And, you know, at that point in time, when Anne said something about this experience, I listened because by then, this was about 19. 90, I guess, 89. And I knew how, I knew that she was, had a very special job to do in this thing. She knew what she was doing from the beginning. Well, like for God, go back a second. And I was very nervous about telling Anne this because we'd been through a lot of ordeals in the, in the fall and winter leading up to the, the 1985 December experience. And then afterwards, it was worse because I thought I was going insane. And I thought that she would be trapped in a marriage with a madman who was going to be in an an institution with no insurance and no way to support her kid. So I was trying to force her to leave me to to get out of the marriage and telling her, you know, Annie, I can't handle the marriage. I'm not a good husband. You need to divorce me. And she was just not wanting to do that at all, you know, cause she was very much in love with me. And she, as she said later, I knew damn well, you were still in love with me because of the way you looked at me when you said that you looked like you were being pushed off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, I told a friend, dear friend, Timothy Greenfield Saunders, um, a documentary filmmaker who's got, got a wonderful film out now about Tony Morrison, by the way. Hmm. Anyway, um, I told Timothy about this and he said to me about the whole experience and it turned out his in-laws had seen the visitors in their backyard, not a half mile from our house a few nights before, before or after a few mornings rather before or after they'd had, they'd taken me. They'd sat at their breakfast table, watching them moving around in the backyard. Well, and you know, they were the kind of people who, you know, just sort of accepted it as Okay. They're weird little creatures in our backyard. <laughs> Fine, we'll, we'll just continue drinking our coffee. Mm-hmm. Never occurred to him to take a picture, of course. Anyway. It never does. Never does. <laughs> Not at the right moment. No, no. And so anyway, so Timothy said, look, Anne isn't well capable of handling this. Just tell her. And so I said to Anne, look, Anne, I got something I'm going to tell you. I got to tell you. And she, of course, thought he's filed. 
And she's sitting there white faced. <laughs> and I said, honey, listen, I don't know how else to say this, but I think I was taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And she said, oh, thank God. God. <laughs> I thought you were going crazy. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized this woman is much more special than I ever understood until now. Anyone who would blurt that out has got stuff going on inside them that you know nothing about, Whitley. So you just sit back and let it happen. Mm -hmm. She took the whole thing over. She built the theme of communion. She changed the title from body terror to communion, as she said, because that's what it's about. And she, she built the relationship with the visitors all from behind the scenes. And that I did didn't not like know. that at all. She mm -hmm. wanted to be in. She said, why, why do I always have to be hidden? And I said, I don't want you to be hidden. It's just that, you know, the media are such jackasses. You know, they don't they only want the guy. They don't want any any his wife or anything. So here was this person who was really doing it all, who was just overlooked by those. I'm just glad they gave me a hearing. I, I, I can say that at least of good about him anyway. One, we're getting by the 19, late 88, the book's out, we're getting thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters. Yeah. Annie, of course, is she's hired a secretary, Laurie Barnes, who was an experiencer and a dear friend and eventually had some incredible multiple witness experiences at the cabin. Anyway. And she lived right around the corner from you. Right around the corner. Yeah, it was a, it's an amazing, I'll tell it very briefly. Um she uh, was looking through letter after letter after letter, and she said, I need a secretary. And I said, well, I'll call Manpower. She said, no, don't do that. I'll find a secretary in these letters. <laughs> and I thought, how is she going to do that? So a few minutes later, I mean, literally 10 minutes later, she says, here's our secretary and hands me a letter. I read the letter, and it's from this lady, Lori Barnes, and it says that she's a singer and an actress. I said, well, she says here she's a singer and an actress, not a secretary. She said, have you ever heard of her? I said, no, I have not. She said, look at the handwriting. That's a professional's handwriting. And I said, and she said, plus she lives two, two doors away. I'm calling her right now. <laughs> so I hear her on the phone. And says, Ann Streber and blah, blah, I got your letter. It was a very interesting, very good, well done letter. Do you happen to do secretarial work? Oh, good. Well, why don't you come over right now? I've got a job here and I need help and you can get started today. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes later, there she was, and she was with us for 15 years. Uh -huh. And that was how Anne did it. I mean, Anne was just wonderful. I mean, she was a, she was absolutely great at this. Anyway, so fast forward again to about six months. She's reading, 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 and Laurie is, and they're organizing the letters, which are all, by the way, folks, cataloged and kept now in an archive at Rice University. So they were they're preserved for eternity, or at least until Rice gets swept off the face of the earth with the rest of us. Right. In any case, <laughs> in any case, um, she walks out of her office and she says, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, look at all of these letters. And she had a stack of them. And there were letters where people who had had their dead friends and relatives show up with the visitors. And this happened at the cabin. It happened to Lori. Lori Barnes is walking up the road one afternoon, and suddenly there's her brother standing in front of her. And she says to, I forget his name, we'll call him John. She says, John, how wonderful to see you again. Come down and meet my fam my friends down at the cabin. And he says, I just wanted to let you know that I'm all right. And when she invited him down to the cabin, he smiled and lifted up and sort of drifted off into the woods and disappeared. And she realized, now, here's the kicker. He had been dead. He disappeared 20 years before and been declared dead by the FBI. Mm -hmm. That was one incident. Another incident that happened is this. A group of people are in the, and oh, later that night, she and Raven Dana and Drew Cummings and a whole group of other people saw a visitor in one of the most extraordinary and complex experiences we ever had at the cabin. Any case, another time at the cabin. A group of people are in the living room sleeping. They're all in, on cots and stuff. And uh, 
the visitors show up because they have one of them is a magazine editor of New Age magazine at the time. And he has promised to put it on the front cover of New Age magazine if they show up, which he chinked it out on later. But that's another story. <laughs> anyway, uh, they do show up, the little dark blue guys, and they're jumping around in the room and the people can talk to each other, but none of them can move. So they are literally talking about this event as it is unfolding in the dark room with these dark figures, but they can see them even though it's dark. And they're talking about what they're saying and describing it to each other. An amazing experience. Meanwhile, in the basement, two people are down there, a couple, and a friend of theirs who died a few years in 1983 in the Mexico City earthquake is standing at the stands appears standing at the foot of the bed and says, I just want to let you know I'm all right. And the, you see the connection here just in these two descriptive experiences of yep. the dead appearing in context of the visitors. Well, there's letter after letter after letter like that. And there's one heartrending, beautiful story of an FAA inspector whose situation is He's, it's 10 o'clock at night. He and his wife are sitting in front of, of, of the fire in their living room. Their old dog is asleep on the hearth. The dog suddenly becomes extremely nervous and wants to go outside. Very unusual because the dog at that age is a creature of habit. Right. He's already been outside. The husband starts to take the dog, the wife starts to take the dog out. She opens the front door and sees a huge ball of light go racing across the sky and down the horizon and she turns to her husband and says I just saw a plane going in on fire you're going to get a call in a minute at that moment their little seven year old boy runs down from upstairs saying mommy daddy mommy daddy Jimmy his older brother I'm not using his real name yeah. just came into my bedroom with a bunch of little blue men and said that his that he Jimmy said to tell you he's all right and the guy had moved heaven and earth. This was before the internet, back in the days when we were still sane. And uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, the guy had moved heaven and earth to get a hold of me through my agency in New York, which was then the William Morris Agency. And he he wanted to know if he had any reason to believe that this had really happened, because of course they were dying of grief and why. Because their 17-year-old the week before had died in an auto accident. Yeah. And that was their 17-year-old who had told their, his little brother to tell them he was all right. And I was very moved to be able to tell him, yes, we have plenty of letters like this. This happens to people frequently. And, of course, I could hear the tears in his voice as he thanked me and hung up. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this comes down to there is a link between these visitors and the dead. Let me tell you what I think it is. Please. The story goes back to Lori Barnes again. Now we flash back to like 1954, I think. She's a young woman. She's lying in bed. She's pregnant. Her husband is out on a gig. They're both uh, music related, doing music-related jobs. He's a pianist. When she notices, she's reading, and she notices movement in the room, and she glances up, and there standing beside the bed is a line of these dark blue frog-like dwarfs. And she recoils in horror, whereupon the one in the lead says, do not be afraid. We're not here for you. We're interested in the girl child you're carrying, which helped <laughs> not watch. Do not be afraid. We're going to tell you something that's going to make you immediately more afraid than anything else we could have told you. They're very good at that. They're very good at that. Anyway, so she's absolutely horrified. Later, when the baby was born, they found out it was a girl. And in fact, she's had a very normal life. She doesn't have close encounter experiences or anything like that. But in any case... He then asked her, why do you fear us so much? She said, because you're so ugly. And he put his hand on her wrist and said gently, my dear, one day you will look just like us. Hmm. I have 
other reason to believe that the human species comes in more than one form, just like caterpillars and butterflies. And I have to ask the question, what does the butterfly look like to the caterpillar? Maybe not so pretty. So I think that what we see here are another level of human being who are in control of the movement of souls. And I have a lot of reasons to believe that, that mm -hmm. that's what they do because I've seen them doing it. And, uh, and you know, there's even a movie, remember the movie ghost that with, uh, such a lovely, lovely movie with, I believe Patrick Swayze and, um, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg, and I may be wrong about Patrick Swayze, but anyway, with Whoopi Goldberg for sure, where whenever somebody dies and you hear these uh, groaning dark creatures come, little dark figures come up out of the ground and drag their soul away mm -hmm. in the movie. Yes. Well, I think something not too far from that is for real, that the author of the screenplay was hitting on something in his own subconscious that he knew to be somehow or another part of human life. And not necessarily that they always take you to the bad, to bad places. I've seen it. I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of souls moved and they're not always moved to, to, to bad situations, but sometimes they definitely are. I saw one situation where a guy, I was a dear friend, but also a criminal. And, you know, he had his own life. He's, I'm not a criminal and I didn't have anything to do with his, his business. But in any case, uh, he was a friend from childhood and I was with his family when he passed away. And right before he, ex, ex, right before we were told he had expired, he suddenly came walking out of the operating room. He was, they were doing a last ditch attempt to save his life. And I, I saw him and I said to Anne, he's he, X is here. Uh, he, he's just died. He just, I just saw him come out into the room. Now they're going to come tell us in a minute. A couple seconds later, the doctor walks out. But in those couple seconds, I saw his soul taken and placed in the body of a baby, the just born baby in India, a little girl. And that baby was fully conscious of who he had been. And started screaming and crying like a banshee because of the fact that he knew what had just happened to him and why. And he is now living that life. He's now in his late teens, early 20s. He's living out that life in karmic balancing for what he did in this life. He did a lot of good in this life and also a lot of bad. And so he was worth saving. And now perhaps this time he will, if he passes away and when he passes away or she passes away, there will be more there. And it's called soul craft. Quite frankly, people don't need to believe me. They can choose to believe whatever they damn well please. Right. Did but you this see this? In, I, did you see this in your mind's eye or how did you? Oh, you know, I see it, it in my mind's eye, sort of, but it's a little more vivid than that. Mm -hmm. I see souls, you know, there's even a course at the Monroe Institute uh, in uh, West Virginia, right. founded by Robert Monroe, who wrote Journeys Out of the Body. Right. They have a course in soul, in, in, in helping, how to help souls, because the souls that are stuck on this level can't go anywhere without our help. They can't get out of here. To them... There is no exit. It just is like this. It's this, only you can't be seen or heard by anybody. And you're just wandering around with seeing others like this, and some of them are desperate to get out of here. And every once in a while, one of them who's got, what will happen is they'll eventually drift into a womb and be reborn. I don't know if they're only drifted into human wombs or not. The Buddhists could easily be right. Yeah. They could drift into any available. I just don't know. It's <laughs> probably just a matter of chance if they're on this level. Because the lower the level you are, the more chance applies. So, uh, and we're all here trying to trying to get to a higher level. That's what it's, this is all about. Anyway, uh, so you have to, you have to, there's an, an, an inner and outer movement of turning them. 
And when you can turn them, they can see the exit and they, they leave. Um, this sounds like the work of a man I met called Father Nathan, Nathan Castle is doing. Have you heard of him? No. Yeah, maybe I should put you in touch with him. He's a Catholic, yeah, he's a Catholic priest. He says he does afterlife um, uh, uh, therapy with people, and I never really got into the uh, nitty-gritty with him as to how he did that. So uh, that might be somebody you might want to talk to. Yeah, I might like to. Email me his information. I always like new people on my show, of course. I'll do that. Whatever you think about what he's doing, he's one of the kindest people I ever met. Just having lunch with him for a couple of hours. Which oh, is listen, what I, a show I've I wanted to this, help him out. I've been doing this and living this kind of a life too long to evaluate people. No, me too. If, I'm, if, I'm getting if there. If with someone me. is saying or doing something that I know is false, that's one thing. Uh, and that does happen. But mm-hmm. mostly when people are struggling in this extraordinary area of human endeavor, which is so amorphous and so filled with question, the first step is you got to become a good listener. Right. Right. That's the main that step. That means open, open listener. Yeah. I, I interviewed uh, Jeff Kripal a few days ago, and he said exactly the same thing. Um, from, you know, Jeff from Kripal his is an excellent listener. Yes. Uh, speaking of Jeff, actually, um, one of the questions I asked him, because he was at uh, Pacifica a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things he said, which is a theme, I believe, in Supernatural and a few of his other books, is with regards to the UFO issue, he's looking for meaning rather than the mechanism. Um, d- did you know that he said that? And if you, whether you knew he yeah, said well, that or not. That's essentially, that's the center of his work. And it's also yeah. the center of our book that we wrote together very right. much. So, right. Ufology if, as a, as a body is mostly looking for mechanism. They want to know how it, how to explain it because that's what the, that's what a scientifically, you know, rationally based society would want. But he says, well, that's not, that's not even half of what it's, what's important. What's important is the meaning in all of this. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? And it sounds like you would agree more with Jeff. Ab- absolutely. Oh yeah. Because you can't, you know, the, the there uh, I know people who have worked on the mechanism aspect of this for years without getting anywhere because, I mean, not nowhere. I wouldn't say they're absolutely uh, nowhere. They are somewhat somewhere, but nowhere near as close as they would like to be. Mm -hmm. They probably have to integrate the meaning to be able to figure out part of the mechanism, would would you think? Yeah, absolutely. You have to. And, and that's one of the great problems if they if they uh, don't uh, if they don't do that and they do tend to not do that they they don't get anywhere they can't because you can't approach the materials for example in the context of how we think about materials because of what I said earlier this stuff's looking back at you. It's not unconscious. It maybe seems like a pile of scrap material, but it's not like what we have at all. You gotta, you gotta get that in your mind or you're never going to get anywhere. William S. Burroughs, probably one of my favorite writers, uh, came to visit the cabin in, in uh, upstate New York. When was that? Um, how did that come about and what happened when he was there? Oh, sometime in during the communion period, William sent me a letter uh, saying he was interested and would like to meet me. And since I was a big fan also, I immediately said yes and invited him up to the cabin. And he and his, his one of his assistants came. And William came two or three times, in fact. And we've even got some very rare pictures of him, which... Out of respect for his desire, to, he didn't like to have pictures of himself taken, and yeah. Annie took him anyway, being Annie. <laughs> she said, he doesn't have any reason not to have pictures. That's just pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, uh, he, anyway, and she would, she would, he would sit on the porch and smoke grass because he was past all the other drugs at that point in his life. Yeah. Yeah, and she would make me in the kitchen making him bot roasts and beautiful cakes and stuff, and oh, he, but loved he loved it. it. There, basically, we had a nice time. Let me put it that way, because she was a hell of a good cook. 
and uh, she was inspired by him. So anyway, we met uh, that way, and he would come up to the cabin and try to have close encounter experiences with the visitors, and they never showed up for, his, for him. But they did show up for the assistant and ah. uh, once, and, and things started hopping around in the room he was in. William was very jealous, but in any case, <laughs> and we wouldn't go out and visit him in, in Lawrence, Kansas, every once in a while. And he told me, he told my son that a lion had eaten his wife, which is one way of putting it, I guess. <laughs> you know, yeah, folks who you don't know, he was playing a game of, yeah, William uh, Tell. Allegedly shooting apples or something off of her head, and she killed her. Yeah, G- uh, Jean Volmer was her name. Right, in Mexico, mm-hmm. back in the late 40s. And and so, anyway, we would go to Lawrence, and he would we would talk guns. He was very interested in guns, and we'd talk guns, and he'd be in there as a little wheelchair. He started waving a gun around, and I would say, Annie... Go in the next room. I don't want him to get overexcited again. So, but we had a lot of fun together. We did. I loved him. He was a wonderful man. What kind of things did he ask you when you were when he was with you about your experience about the visitors, and what what was his interest? I mean, I could guess. His interest but what did was he that he wanted to know there was more than this. Ah, that was his interest because he was getting up in years. He'd had a big, complicated life. And he'd done all of this stuff and really had a huge effect on the world and the way we think about ourselves. And he wanted to know, am I anything, anything, mm-hmm. am I anything? And uh, I don't blame him. I mean, we, we all want to know that. Right. The ego does die with the body, but not necessarily we don't. I mean, what happens is if you uh, uh, is that the second body, which is connected to the nervous system is gathering every detail of your life yeah. and you die this moves back into your soul which takes what it can of this and and then moves on and uh you know if you've had a good life it can take a lot and you you know you don't lose yourself and yeah. otherwise you do lose yourself and it's, it's like what the Pope says is right. When he says, people ask, have asked this Pope, what happens? Is there a hell? What happens to evil people? And he said, nothing. They disappear. They do. That's exactly what happens. The, all of that just disappears. And, you know, if you think to yourself, you could have had an immortal being in a state of ecstasy, and instead you lived a life and you just disappeared. Mm-hmm. That might as well be hell. I think we all know these things on some level, and William was looking for his place. Mm-hmm. He wanted to know where he would be and what happened. When, what happens to me? We're all the same. We're all kids, you know, basically children here. We're all asking, what happens to me? You get to a point where you don't worry about it because it's not up, it's not up to you. What happens to you is what's going to happen to you based on your life. And you live a good life, uh, you live by love, compassion, and humility, you build a strong soul, and that's all you have to worry about. The rest of it is, is belongs to other levels. They will, what is out there will do what it wishes with you. The last thing he wrote down, apparently before he died, did you, do you know what that was? Nope. He wrote on a piece of paper, and I think uh, somebody uh, put the image up here on on my uh, radio show um, Facebook site. But his notes said, um, all there is is love. It is the most powerful painkiller there is. Something to that effect. You know what Annie said to me after one of the things she said after she died, which has become my aim in life. My, it's a life aim of the most incredible value I know. She said, enlightenment is what happens when there is nothing left of us but love. So William said essentially the same thing just then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's the truth. Maybe, uh, that, maybe you helped him a little. Maybe. I don't know. But I, she didn't say that when he was alive. And she said it recently after she died. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she and, you know, but it's, it's so true. And when you people's faces sort of close when they hear that because we're all clinging 
to our angers and our justifications and our injustices. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. this was done to me and that was wrong. I cling to this. I can't ever let it go. This is me. It's actually just dead weight. It doesn't matter a bit. Yeah. Not a bit. All of it is. But to let that dead weight go is a tremendous challenge. Yes. It's probably the hardest challenge anybody has. I mean, uh, yes. You know, the only that's why you don't see that's that why, very often. That's why what Annie says is such an extraordinary aim in life. Mm-hmm. Because that's a worthy aim and a very, very challenging one. I, 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 I reach that level every day. And then I get in my car and I drive <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> I knew exactly what you were going to say. I'm a gorilla. Or I'm not a gorilla. Gorillas are nice. They're nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a gorilla. I'm some kind of a monster. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a bad guy. Yeah. I'm not going to let that guy, he passed this. I'm not going to let him, he, he, that fool over there, those idiots, those morons. Oh, I do. I'm that's a, that. that's, yeah, that's an, I, 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 um, I use it as an exercise with, I was, I was like, let's see if I can do this without getting mad at somebody. And just, somebody goes in front of you, just like, okay, that's their deal. And even commenting on it is, right. is wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's a wonderful, the streets of Los Angeles, in fact, the streets of any city are a wonderful place to find higher consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. And you know, history, people always think of the last judgment as being something that's going to happen on a day sometime in the future. The beginning of history is the beginning of the last judgment. Mm -hmm. And souls have gotten more and more complex, and life has gotten more and more complex, giving us more and more opportunities to screw up or surmount these challenges than before and we will reach a point where there is a kind of singularity of knowledge where we will know who we are we will know what death is the veil between the worlds will drop away and at that point then this will be over this le- this level will be over we will no longer be in the physical uh-huh and we'll all be blaming the Republicans because they ignored global warming. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> so just remember that when that happens, don't blame the Republicans. <laughs> be cool about it as you can, cool as you can in that hot box. It's going to be on, uh, coming along sooner or later. We've been talking. You said you wanted an uh, hour. Um, do you want to stop now and continue at some other point? Because that was a really nice uh Stay, really nice uh yeah sentiment to go out because on. i'm i've got a i've got the my friends on my back here and i gotta okay. get this i gotta get to a certain place today or i do not want to go to sleep tonight because that will be uh, a mistake okay i've probably got 30 other questions and we will continue them some other time okay thank you very much for having me at last yes at last thank you so much okay. whitley i'll talk to you go soon on. all right he was a visitor she was a visitor. 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 
she was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor. She was a visitor.